If you're watching this video, you already know that Adobe Premiere Pro is a giant among nonlinear editing software for content creators on YouTube and other short format venues. However, up until recently, it was barely a blip on the radar of editors working on bigger budget studio films and network television. But all of that is changing. One of the reasons for the shift is that over the last few years, Premiere has gained a strong foothold among independent filmmakers. In fact, over half the films at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival were edited in Premiere. Hi, I'm film editor Lawrence Jordan from Master the Workflow, and we provide information and create in-depth training for anyone who aspires to work in professional post-production worldwide. As Adobe continues to improve Premiere to meet the demands of longer format projects, a new generation of editors who learned how to edit in the software are carrying their knowledge over into their professional careers. Noah Diamond Stallsman is one of this new generation of editors who, while skilled in a variety of NLEs, is widely recognized as an expert in the long-form Premiere workflow. He currently traverses the worlds of both assisting and editing working on projects for companies like Discovery, Spike TV, and Viacom. He was a multi-season member of the editing team at College Humor, and last year he edited the independent feature film Donovan Reed. On his latest project, he's working as an assistant editor on the Netflix series Last Chance You, The Final Season. Today, Noah's gonna share some of his knowledge about editing and Premiere, the unique challenges of working on tighter budgets, and finally, some insights about getting started in today's editing business. So let's get to uh, talking to Noah. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Working on some fun multi-cam minutiae, you know, getting that all cleaned and sorted out. Uh, and now I'm here to, to join all of you. So Noah, tell us a little bit about your background. Are you from LA? Uh, if not, when did you come here? No, I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, it'll be my fifth year in LA this August. Wow, so pretty recent transplant. Yeah, relatively. Uh, yeah, I moved down uh, 2015. Um, shortly after graduating, when I, I had a, a job uh, I was doing up in San Francisco, my contract ended with that. And I figured, well, if I'm going to be looking for new work, I might as well look for in a new environment. I had uh, I knew some people that had moved down here before me, and that kind of made the entire transition feel a little bit more accessible. My first weekend, I think a day or two after I moved down, was actually Edit Fest. I kind of took that as a sign. That is. That's a good sign. Yeah, I went there straight after Fresh in LA. I went to my first Edit Fest, uh, and I met a lot of great people there that I still work and associate with today, including uh, people you know, who went on to found the Los Angeles chapter, chapter of Blue Collar Post Collective. That's fantastic. And for people who don't know, Edit Fest is presented by the American Cinema Editors, and it's held at Disney Studios. And they have a bunch of panels. Usually each panel has about five or six editors, and they interview editors about topics, you know, pertaining to the craft. Uh, it's really a great day of information, education, and networking. And usually they'll have a keynote speaker or a lead speaker. I think last year it was Joe Walker. Uh, editor Joe Walker. And uh, yeah, it's an amazing event. So if you get a chance, if you're in LA around that time of year, you should definitely try to go. And Blue Collar Post Collective is a wonderful uh, organization that really supports, you know, new and upcoming post-production professionals. We at Master the Workflow work with them as closely as possible to provide scholarships to people who want to learn the profession. And uh, you should check them out also. They're on uh, 
Facebook and they have a website and uh, they have a Facebook group, uh, Blue Collar yeah, Post Collector. Primarily a Facebook group, but also exists in a email newsletter format. Yeah, yeah. So check those out if uh, if you want some information about what's happening. And they have chapters in Los Angeles, London, I think Adelaide, and and New York, which is New York, where it was founded. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you came from San Francisco. Did you go to film school in San Francisco? I did. I went to San Francisco State University. Uh, I did uh, two years there. Uh, a little. I, I transferred to San Francisco State after out of community college, uh, and and. Uh, wrapped up my film degree there. Did you think film school was like really um, critical to getting into the film business or, or not getting in, but um, becoming a post-production professional? I have very, I have very mixed feelings about, about it. Uh, I think on the one hand, I personally didn't take as much advantage of the networking as I could have. I wasn't involved with as many other people's projects, I think, which is the main the main strength is getting in with a lot of people. I think especially in production where there's a lot more of that style of networking. But I also was kind of in a weird place where I had a lot more of the fundamentals. I had done study film for three years in high school and for all mm -hmm. my time in community college, I had done several uh, professional internships by the time I was there. So I was kind of a bit ahead of the curve. I think there were some people in my classes who had, you know, hadn't even really picked up a camera in a serious way before they're like film that's what I want to do and they went to school for it uh so I wasn't there as much learning those kind of fundamentals but I did really enjoy it, it let me kind of push my boundaries I took a lot of interesting classes and from like a critical thinking and theory perspective I came out a lot stronger that I think was my biggest takeaway uh from film school you know I took genre studies I took experimental documentary you know took a lot of those kind of interesting things, I, you know, uh, classes and things that really expanded the scope of, of what I experienced. So yeah, that, that's that for me, I came out just more well-rounded as, as a consumer of film and therefore. Yeah, that, that's something that when people ask, you know, is film school worth it? Um, you know, I didn't go to film school and- Oh, sorry. Cat, cat alerts, <laughs> no worries. And, um, you know, I just wanted to work in the business and I had, you, you know, and I just had all of this energy and I had heard of all these people who never really went to film school and they've become very successful. But you're right. The, the critical studies, just watching films and taking that time to sort of grow uh, is really invaluable. Plus, you know, the networking side. I mean, the people who, uh, you know, form relationships at school a lot of times go on to, you know, make films together for the rest of their lives. And you got you got Thelma and Martin, although that's obviously a very different era, but, you know, she yeah. met him in film school. Yeah, and, you know, the stories of people coming out of USC cinema who have gone on, who went on to work together are, are numerous. Um, but did you know you wanted to be a film editor? When did you kind of get it? Uh, like I said, I started studying film my sophomore year of high school. I actually did it because I just really liked the teacher who, who taught that among other classes. So I wanted to take something with him. But once I started doing it, I kind of, I realized that I had an interest in it in the past. Like I'd done a lot of, you know, silly films with friends. I had the, the Lego stop motion kit, which was, uh, <laughs> which used Pinnacle, which I'm not sure where that entity is, but I guess that was my first editing software. Uh, and pretty early on, like I started out wanting to be a director and pretty early on, I kind of realized that's a bit of the default. Like I think anyone, when you first start exploring film, you just go to, to director because that's just the entirety of filmmaking kind of gets uh, distilled down to that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I realized that I should kind of try and focus on what aspect I, I especially enjoyed. Uh, and, and it was the cutting that I really found that I enjoyed spending that, the time in that the most. And so I chose to 
focus on that uh, fairly early on, I think. What was your first job in, in film or video? How did you get it? I, I had an internship in college uh, for for a local film uh, studio or company, uh, television company in the Bay Area. Uh, they do shows for like Investigation Discovery and History Channel and stuff. Uh, but the first thing I would consider like my real job job in film was uh, for a stand-up comedy uh, startup in San Francisco called Rooftop Comedy, who were acquired by uh, Audible uh, while I was working there. Uh, we worked for Audible Amazon for a little while. Uh, and that was, yeah, I think the first time I was like, oh, I, I've got a job. And I actually took some time off from college because I was winding down there. I had like a few credits. I, I focused on that full time. Uh, and that was the job that when that wrapped up, I felt confident enough to move down to L.A. Wow. So were you working, what were you working with at that point, at that job? Uh, I mean, that was actually very rudimentary in terms of editing. They basically, the, their big thing was they had uh, cameras set up all throughout uh, the country in comedy clubs. And they would record performances. And then we would screen them and we would cut out content to then go back to the comedians and license for various platforms. So... I mean, it was it was almost more of an assistant editor job, despite uh, my official title being editor. And it was a lot of working with their kind of proprietary tools for pulling the assets and stuff like that. Because we would we would get proxies basically beamed to our local machine while the full resolution files stayed local, and then we would pull time codes and put them into like a database software that would then kick off cutting out the spe those specific clips and pushing them local to us and stuff like that. I imagine though, an experience like that was was somewhat invaluable, especially being your first job. Yeah, no, it was it was a really great place. And I, I met some people that I'm still very close with. Uh, and, you know, and it kind of did set me on a bit of a comedy track. You know, I worked at, at Biocom for a few years, um, doing a lot of stuff with Comic Central, you know, and I ended up being a college humor. And so, you know, being, you know, in that kind of space, it kind of helped. And I and we were working with a lot of comedians who were at like, you know, it, it worked at a specific level of comedian people who were just about to get big because the big people obviously were too big to do business with us and the small people we didn't want to do business or weren't at a level yet where we were valuable to us. So I did get to work with a lot of people who were on the cusp of blowing up, like, you know, Roy Wood Jr. and Moses Storm, both of which I ended up working with again later down the road um, on a lot of stuff. So that was kind of cool. You know, and I, it's been interesting watching people I was familiar with through that, that job kind of get more on the, on the cusp and break out uh, since then. Cool. Alrighty, let's talk a little bit about um, about nonlinear editing. So you cut in Premiere. Is Premiere your primary software package? Have you have you played or worked with others? Final Cut, Resolve, Avid. Uh, Final Cut was probably my first professional NLE. Uh, I started in, in fact, iMovie, uh, and then graduated myself up to Final Cut uh, five or six, I think. Uh, uh, and I was in there up and up until the bitter end. Uh, and after that, I actually briefly transitioned into Avid because I figured if I was going to learn a new NLE, that would be the place to go. And I kind of got some Avid fundamentals, but that I just wasn't at a level where there was Avid work coming in. Uh, and that's where I, I went and taught myself uh, Premiere. And that's definitely been when I, where I've spent most of my time uh, ever since. Uh, you cool. know, I've, I've, I've played in Resolve and I've you know, done work in Avid as well, uh, but it's, it's majority Premiere. Yeah, I've lectured at a bunch of colleges and universities around California and I have not, you know, well, USC obviously has an, an AVID setup, but uh, I think UCLA does also. But pretty much all of the other colleges, UC Santa Barbara, LACC, Pierce College, uh, all have premier installations. And so this next generation of editors is really 
you know, is learning on Premiere. It's and definitely I, more accessible. And I think, I think another thing that makes it difficult to learn Avid at that level is that Avid thrives in an environment that, that those people aren't working in. Right. Offline, online. Or even just, just uh, teams, large, right. large teams and stuff like that. Like, you know, uh, I was on a documentary show recently uh, before this one that was in Avid. And, you know, yeah, being able to push things, pull things from producers and push them to editors and update bins and stuff like that is all incredibly valuable and very powerful and where Avid really shines. Uh, but when you're in college making, you know, films with teams of five people and one of them's an editor, it's just not something you, you need uh, or are making use of. And, and so it's harder to really justify the investment uh, to, to get an Avid workflow working for those shows, for those projects. But what about now? Uh, for example, your Netflix project, that that's on a shared network storage, right? Uh, yeah, so it, it, it was on a shared network oh, that's storage. Right. Yeah. Uh, now it's it's all on Google Drive, uh, which has been. I, I I personally use Google Drive for shared storage for for the feature film I cut, uh, the documentary I'm working on right now as well. Uh, I've, I've in fact kept just entire films on a, a sync Google Drive folder, uh, and and let it just live update. Um, and and College Humor basically used uh, briefly when I was there used Google Drive as a shared storage for project files. We had an actual SAN for for media and assets that the project files were all uh, sunk through Google Drive. Wow. It is, it's definitely interesting. I'm not, you know, this, this, this show is a company that's on a number of shows with Netflix. So they kind of have their workflow very um, kind of hammered out and very smooth at this point. So I've been mostly observing and getting into how they are doing things. Um, but they're just working with a lot of projects. They have a, there's a lot of story producers, so it's a lot of the story producers kind of working in their own folders with their own projects and pulling things together. That then the editors will go and pull things from that. So I believe it's using a lot of importing and media browser and stuff like that. Uh, it's it's less of people working in the same spaces simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So so that shared environment you know is less crucial. Are you utilizing the new productions feature yet? We are not. We're still in 2018. Oh, interesting. Uh, which has posed some issues because it's not an installable version of, of Premiere anymore, but we're making do. I think yeah. there's been some talk of upgrading, which uh, you know, I know is, is not kosher to do, but you know, sometimes uh, yeah. things, things push you. I mean, that documentary I'm working on, we've been at it for four years now. I can tell you we've upgraded the version of Premiere. We're working in on that a number of times just out of necessity. I think that you'll find the productions feature uh, really worthwhile. Uh, I'm using it on a small independent film that I'm doing right now, and it's it because I come from an avid background. It uh, it enables me to sort of see the overall, you know, get the thirty thousand foot view the same way in terms of the folder structure and things like that, organizational structure. Uh, but I'm in the same boat. I'm working with an assistant who is in her own home, and uh, she uploads stuff to Frame.io, which is. Really cool, by the way. Frame.io is wonderful. Yeah, it's it's an amazing tool, and I think that you know once people kind of get in, more people get an idea of, of how powerful it is, uh, I think more people are going to start using it. But uh, yeah, no, I really like productions. I think I think and it and it works in a, a shared environment, very similar to Avid in terms of bin, bin locking and things like that. So I hope you get a chance to check that out. I, I, th I think I mean, and, and and while I love those features and stuff, I think that. Uh, there's definitely a benefit to working in a more restrictive environment. Uh, I think, I think as a, as a training tool, like it, it makes me think of when, when I was in film school, we had to do several projects on film. You know, I shot a short, uh, you know, on a 16 millimeter Bolex. 
Mm-hmm. And and it's not that I'm ever going to you know need that skill on my resume. I'm never going to go for a job. And they're like, hey, have you ever shot on a Bolex? Mm-hmm. But when you're shooting on film, when you're shooting with, with, I mean, you've got a viewfinder, but barely, you know, <laughs> it, it teaches you a level of care and a level of, of rigorousness. You know, you have to measure the focal length. You have to make sure everything's right. And that kind of, it, it, it teaches you to not be sloppy. Right. Uh, and I think similarly, when you're working, you know, in Premiere in a shared environment where you don't have something like productions, you have to be careful and you have to be clean and you have to communicate uh, and so I think it's a good way. It's 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 instilled at least in me a kind of a more rigorous workflow because it's been necessary. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Whereas in Avid, you can, and I've seen you know it, it, when I got into Avid, I even started getting a little sloppier because it's it's so much easier to just noodle around and do things just willy nilly. I kind of had to rein myself back. I got you know power power mad uh, <laughs> and be like, no, I still need to to kind of bring that level of communication, that level of care from working in something that doesn't allow me to do this in order to make sure everything goes smoothly and clean. Yeah. I mean, in small teams, I think, I think it's, it's pretty safe when you get into bigger teams, it can get very hairy, uh, non-shared, you know, projects and things like that. Just keeping track of it gets nuts. But I mean, that's how it was in the original Avid days. There was no shared storage at the time. There was no shared projects and everything was done over sneaker net. And you had to be careful. You had to make sure you were not overriding a, a scene that someone else had just worked on. So yeah, it is. they are good skills to have. And they are, you know, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry in, in that respect. So as a premiere editor and, and in the types of projects you, you work with, including, you know, your current one, do you usually get to work with other assistants or are you the main assistant? So it, it's been a mixed bag. So for, for Donovan Reed, the feature I did, uh, I had, I kind of had an assistant. Uh, Isabel Yanez, who's, who's a good friend, came in and helped uh, prepare the footage. Uh, and, and she, you know, got everything ready to edit. But because of the low budget, you know, it was very much a side project for everyone. Uh, and, and the remote factor, I didn't have access to her really much after that point. Uh, she came back again to help a little bit with prepping for turnovers and stuff. But once, once the footage was in my hand, I was basically acting as my own assistant. When I was at College Humor, um, you know, in, in the later seasons, I, I cut uh, five seasons of a long form unscripted show there. Uh, and it became one of their flagship shows. And so in, after a few seasons, we pushed and had an assistant editor brought on. Uh, and that was really fantastic. And there was definitely a kind of a lear- learning curve for me and just like what I was able to kind of pass on to them and, you know, being so used to doing everything myself. Sure. So, so I had, you know, we went through a few assistant editors on that show. And then, like, you know, like this documentary I'm, I'm cutting, we, it's, it's just me and the other editor figuring things out as we go. And tell me about the, uh, the workflow in College Humor. I mean, did you get your dailies? Uh, did you have to sync your dailies? Who, who, you know, how were they organized? I never did that. College Humor had several uh, assistant editors who would work for the whole company. Uh, and this kind of was, I think, born out of when they were in a more short-form environment before they branched into long-form content. Uh, and so those assistant editors would prep things and pass them on to the editors. And then very similar, the editors would be just on their own uh, from there. Uh, and it was as this show kind of grew in scope that we got them to bring on a dedicated assistant editor uh, who would just work on just work on our show. Was the show shot double system with the assistant sync dailies and organized? Yeah, so the, this, the assistant, yeah, the assistant would be doing syncs uh, for for our show because it was uh, it's it's a Dungeons and Dragons show, so it's people sitting around the table, multicam. So it would be they'd be prepping basically a, a time of day multicam sync map that we'd be cutting from. 
Uh, and then there's some pickup macro photography and stuff that they would uh, inventory and, and log and, and prepare for us. Uh, and then we all, we all, I was lucky enough that the first assistant editor that we brought on uh, was very skilled with uh, After Effects. And so we started to push visual effects shots onto him because the college room had a dedicated visual effects person, but he was incredibly busy. And so it usually wasn't in the time or budget to push requests onto him for our show. So what were the biggest challenges working in Premiere on, on a show like College Humor? I mean, it sounds, it sounds like pretty run and gun and, and, and a little chaotic. I mean, let's, like, like a lot of unscripted shows. Uh, you know, just specifically, specifically from Premiere, I'm, I'm not sure I would say there was much. Uh, there was, you know, that window, I think, um, on 2018 where uh, AAFX ports were broken uh, and we, we couldn't turn over to, to sound. Yeah. From that, uh, so we were using the very unlicensed Premiere Downgrader tool <laughs> to downgrade uh, and and push that into 2017 to output AAFs, which I mean wasn't it, that 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 workflow got a little wonky because I mean the show we were cutting is you know uh, hour and a half to two and a half hour long episodes in 4K, uh, and the downgrader has a, a, a size limit of like 10 megabyte project files, so we would have to like make a special project file that was just the audio and everything really stripped down. Wow! In order to for it to even work in that tool. Fortunately, by by you know there was in in the past there was a lot of issues with uh, breaking out multi camera audio, uh, but that was mostly resolved by the time uh, we started on that show. So flattening the audio for those turnovers and things, for the most part, had become a, a pretty painless process. So in, ter in terms of turnovers to a sound house, for example, uh, Premiere can, can output EDLs and AAFs and everything yeah. uh, a company that would, for example, be working in Pro Tools yeah. would need? Yeah, uh, I, I tend to, as a default, prefer AAFs. I find that I've had the best success with them, uh, but it's not uncommon that I'll, especially if you know time is a factor, I don't want to have to do another delivery, I'll, I'll output an OMF and an AAF. Uh, and, uh, and and deliver both of them just so they have access to both tools. And then, you know, of course, XMLs uh, are pretty standard for turnovers to color. What about um, changes? Did you encounter a lot of changes or were shows just locked when you were finished? You know, uh, that, that was more often when I was at Viacom. because we, I worked in the digital short form department there for two years as an assistant editor and would handle the turnovers and things like that. That was more often where we would have, oh, you know, last minute changes and tweaks. And yeah, a lot of times it would, you know, we didn't have, Premiere doesn't have change logs or reels or anything like that, or I guess it can have reels, but we weren't using them to short form. Uh, and a lot of times it would be a factor of, oh, you know, they've added a sound effect. I have to, you know, I'm going to take out an AAF of just that sound effect and send that to the, to the mixer and be like, hey, insert this. Or even just send the sound effect on its own with just a time code mode if it was something really simple. Right. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was really for, you know, the, we used DaVinci Resolve for color uh, and, and while I, while I, I haven't cut into DaVinci Resolve yet, so I don't know how it is as an NLE, having those tools in just your color software is incredibly valuable because you don't need to go back to the NLE to make changes. Being able to, to hop over and make tweaks and stuff like that in the color grading tool after it's been colored uh, was always you know incredibly valuable. So are you saying for fi for fixes? Did you did you do? Uh, but you had a, a color house to do. No, no, we, our color was done in in house. We had a, a color suite and a an in house colorist. Awesome, amazing. So I, I would I would prep all of his projects for him, and then I would uh, bring them back out of Resolve. So even in that environment, you had a you know a separate uh, person for color and a separate person for sound, obviously, yeah. and um, and you were cutting. 
And, you know, that's another thing that young people or new people coming into the industry kind of don't understand, because a lot of people are sold on the idea that, well, you can do everything because the software can do everything. But as, as it's practiced in long form, people specialize in, in a craft, yeah. uh, editing, color correction, sound design, sound editing. And, uh, but it sounds like you've, you know, just from your background, you've got kind of chops and all of that stuff. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing talking about that was I was, you know, I was at College Humor as they were gearing up and launching their, their long form streaming platform. And as they were transitioning from short form to long form and going through those very changes, you know, on, on the short form content, on the, when, I, when I came in, the editors did all the sound mixing, they did all the color grading in just straight in Premiere. Right. You know, even even they had done some longer stuff. They had done some half hour shows and stuff that that hadn't launched yet, and they had done those with that same workflow. Uh, but it was as our show came in, as you know, with a half an hour and a half to two and a half hour runtime, that myself and the other editor on that show said, "No, we we can't do the mix for this. You need to bring in you know a sound mixer." And we you know we started broaching that idea, yeah. Uh, and and it started there and kind of proliferated, proliferated through a lot of those other long form uh, shows until you know the sketches and and the you know, the, the sketch of an extremely short form content was still being mixed in Premiere by the by the editors. I even still did that on other shows I worked on there. But that started going in and then they built out a color suite and we started, you know, doing stuff in Resolve and then and, and doing more turnovers and, and the, the workflow kind of grew in that, you know, in about a span of a year from this very, yeah, more insular, you know, one man band uh, set up to a more professional long form workflow. Right. Would you say that your skills in 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 like Lumetri Color and DaVinci Resolve are what pretty adequate? I mean, would you? Yeah. I mean, and we 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 had you know we had a, a professional uh, colorist, Jason Bodak, came in and did you know a, a workshop with all of the editors there and and taught us you know a lot of fundamentals of of color grading. I learned how the hell nodes work while I was there, uh, cool. which you know is is weird to wrap your head around, but incredibly powerful once you get a grip oh, yeah. on it. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I had a lot of work. I had a lot of experience through Viacom with the workflow of turning turning over, and I learned a little bit of color stuff there because I would sometimes do fixes when the colorist wasn't in and stuff like that. But yeah, I definitely de- you know broadened my knowledge of it uh, there. Yeah, it's 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 great to be forced to do all that stuff because and yeah, and I think that that's valuable just to increase you know even just to be able to communicate with the colorist knowing knowing how the fundamentals of what they're doing and and how they're going to accomplish the things that you are talking about. You know, makes Absolutely. that process so much smoother. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. Having come from you know a, you know a Hollywood union background, uh, I've been siloed you know much of my career as just uh, at first obviously an assistant editor for many years, and then as a, as an editor. And you know I've always had this desire to learn Pro Tools, but you know as far as I can see, it looks like you know Szechuan Chinese to me. I you know I just can't you know which is crazy because I was one of the first guys to cut on the Avid, and I'm incredibly adept at that, but. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like I say, I think it's great to dip your toes, uh, especially early on, and and know as much as you can. And I think that a lot of editors, again, you know, sort of like a young younger generation editors, are doing so much stuff. Y- you know, uh, even even guys like Alan Bell are doing his own visual effects work. And y- you know, I know a lot of editors who do tremendous 5.1 sound mixes and in temps and things like that. And uh, you know, it's it's a lot of work, but uh, you, you make yourself more marketable that way. I mean, let's just face it. So let's get into uh, the whole uh, getting into the business. What do you think is the most important qualification for an assistant editor to have? 
Uh, I mean, I'm going to feel bad because I'm just going to steal it straight from what Richard always says. you got to be someone that people want to spend 10 hours trapped in a room with. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's just a popularity contest, but, you know, being someone that people enjoy being with and, and is, is so incredibly valuable. You know, and, and so much of this, this industry is referrals and, you know, people, you know, are going to refer to the people they get along with, um, you know, not to make it sound like favoritism or anything like that, but you're not going to refer that guy who pisses you off every time you're in the same room with him. <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, you know, especially when you're referring them to someone, you know, someone else and you're putting yourself on the line. Right. You know, and, and they and they become kind of stepping forward as as an extension of yourself. Right. I mean, I think I think that it's incredibly simple when when we look at it, you know, sort of objectively, is that you could be the best technically versed assistant in the world and you can have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of film history, but if you're an asshole, no one's gonna want to work with you. Yeah. Or unless you're Stanley Kubrick or, you know, Albert Hitchcock. That's true. But those guys weren't editors. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and, and those are both filmmakers who I've I've long said, especially when we talk that they have their their advice on filmmaking is terrible if you're not them. Uh, this is true. This is you know, true. You know, famously, you know, Bobby Osteen talks about in, in her book that uh, in Rear Window, you know, it, uh, Hitchcock cut the movie in the camera and there was 90 feet of unused film after <laughs> it was edited, which is like two minutes, I want to say, in 30, at 35 millimeter. Right. And like, yeah, it works for Hitchcock, but I don't think any other director should be taking, taking that lesson to heart. Right. No. Uh, you know, guys who cut in the camera, they really better know what they're, what they're doing because otherwise you're screwed as an editor. So, uh, but what about technically? I mean, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of people say, well, I want to be an editor, but I'm not that technical of a person. What do you say to that kind of person? It, it comes down to being, you know, willing to learn, being, being willing to take on what you can. I think, I think you can't know everything. And I think trying to be like, I have to, you know, know these things. It, I think, Knowing everything before you go into the job is is an unrealistic expectation. You have to go into a job being willing and able to learn everything you need to you need, uh, and, and being open and being a, a sponge and and really just soaking that all up in, in that in that way. Uh, I think every you know every job is is unless you're you know, you know something you've been you know a, a multiple seasons or something that you've done that specific workflow before. Every job is going to be a learning experience. Yeah. Uh, and you you need to be able to to take those punches. Yeah, I say that all the time, and and you know it's one of the things that you know keep me going in the business is that I'm thrilled uh, to do a certain kind of project like my last one, which was this massive visual effects film. Uh, in spite of it being a comedy, you know it was like getting another master's degree. I mean, I learned so much about visual effects. You know, even you know just how how visual effects work in the Avid. And, uh, and, and I had done other visual effects films, but things have changed so much and so on and so forth. And, and I think even, even I, I take it back when something is the same show over and over again, you know, I cut five seasons of Dimension 28 College Humor workflow on season, on season six, because you know, I cut through season six, it was a dramatically different workflow than it was on season one. You know, because because we were always kind of, you know, mm-hmm. our, our goals were changing and how we were approaching things were changing and evolving. Yeah, sure. So um, in general, what recommendations do you have for new people, uh, you know, trying to become editors or assistant editors? Uh, I mean, learn as much as you can, but don't, for, for me, at least for, for my style of learning, like I don't, I wouldn't stress about learning, memorizing everything. The, the way I learn is, is very much through kind of osmosis and I just kind of absorb things and then they kind of exist when, when I encounter them in reality, they're familiar. I, I might not even know it. Like, you know, I took 
you know, the, the assistant editor boot camp. And I, you know, learned, you know, how to do all the dailies and stuff in there, but I didn't memorize it or retain it. But when I got a job where I had to do that, I was like, oh, this is not foreign and alien to me. Right. But learning by doing. Yeah. And then I was able to, you know, go and I you know, look up Will Blank's tutorial and stuff like that and, and piece it back together when it kind of became necessary and, and work into that space. And, you know, and, and then it's also just, you know, it, it makes it really tough for people who are trying to make it in the industry for other locations, but being where the, the people are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I will, you know, keep going back to my first time at Edifest, which is a, a you know, a influential day in my career. I mean, the internet makes things so much more, that it makes that more accessible, you know, like Blue Collar Post Collective, you can be, you know, a, a presence in the community without having to physically be there. I mean, hell, the, whole, the main reason I'm here is, you know, we, we ran into each other at an event and you had commented that you had seen me all over the Adobe Premiere groups. Right. You know, and so that wasn't even a, you know, it was the, the connection itself was an in-person one, right. but, but a, uh, yeah, virtual forms online. Yeah. There's so much opportunity to network and to meet other people and other filmmakers. So um, I, I would encourage people to take advantage of that and don't be shy. Don't be a jerk because that'll put people off. And sometimes behind the uh, keyboard, we have tendency to maybe speak a little bit differently than we would as if, if we were talking to somebody face to face. So, but yeah, develop relationships and, and ask questions. I, I think that's the best. And, and, and best I think go, going to events like, you know, it, it, and, and this, this is definitely something I've learned through the kind of philosophy of Blue Collar Post Collective of, of building, fostering connections. You know, it's not about, you know, you're not gonna go to Edifest and you're gonna hand someone a business card and they're gonna call you and give you a job. But you're gonna go to Edifest and you're gonna meet someone and then you're gonna go to, to you know, visual, art, visual artists and you're gonna see them again. And then you're going to go to this and you're going to go to that. And, and it, you know, it's, it's this kind of constant exposure and yeah. being active and present and, and becoming familiar in that way. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that creates those connections. Yes, absolutely. And, and you're right. Conver I, I mean, you know, L.A., New York, London, these are, you know, kind of like ground zeros of, you know, post-production and professional filmmaking, long form and, you know, longer form and television. Uh, but virtually you can start your networking and, and meet people and kind of become a member of the community uh, from anywhere. And there are filmmaking hubs everywhere. I mean, Austin has a filmmaking hub, you know, San Francisco. It's happening in a lot of places. And there are certainly a lot of opportunities just to get your feet wet and just to sort of get, you know, get in the door, get a job as, you know, a grip or, a, you know, a focus puller or, you know, somebody who just helps out an editor somehow. I've, I've long said that I'm, I'm a little envious that uh, production has so much more rungs on their ladders. Yeah. In terms of like you can go in and you can be a PA and you can be a PA in any department, but if you want to be like a cinematographer, you can go hang out with the camera department on right. breaks and stuff. And then you, maybe you're a camera PA and then maybe, you know, you, you know, they bring you in as like a third ace and you can kind of like work. Your, there's so many more steps and rungs you can do. Whereas in post-production, it's a much, you know. Yeah. Post-PA assistant editor. <laughs> and, and yeah. And even post-PA, I, I feel like, you know, is, is tougher because they don't, they don't interact as much. Like it, it kind of tends to run more into the management post-coordinator, post-supervisor ladder uh, i mean it's definitely a good entry-level point take where you can but i feel like I, I probably know more people who never worked as a post pa that are that are working in post than than have right so like for those first couple of jobs though i mean you know somebody's really green maybe just got to town whatever do you think the networking is sort of like the key element i mean do you cold call do you cold I mean, email do you send out resumes do you go yeah. to some of these job websites for for me facebook has been an invaluable tool 
uh, truth, truth be told, and and being on on the right Facebook groups and being quick on the trigger. Uh, my, you know, my my first job in Los Angeles, I got two months uh, after I was in for for a startup company that posted on Facebook, uh, and I was there for nine months. Uh, and I left there when I when I went to Viacom, you know, and I, there was a, and that was all. These were both through Facebook job posting. College Humor was a Facebook job posting. This job I'm at now was a Facebook job posting. But wow. and and I think that you know and 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 I hate giving that advice because it just feels so out of out of your control to be like just sit there and wait for a good because <laughs> there's a lot of terrible jobs on Facebook. But yeah, yeah you kind of you know I have notifications turned off for all those groups. I I firmly believe that being quick on the trigger is you know Viacom. I was the first person to respond to that job. Uh, you know, and and the person you know my my person who became my boss replied to my comment on that post and no one else's. Wow. Uh, you know. Uh, but then there's a certain amount of, of leveraging. Like, you know, I saw the job posting at College Humor. I knew I knew someone who was working there at the time, Brittany Joyner. I knew someone who had edited for them in the past, Andy Young. I immediately reached out to both of them and said, hey, can you put in a word for me? And and I was fortunate, I, I, and this is the only reason I still do this, because I kind of hate commenting on the post saying, hey, I, I messaged you or I emailed you. But I, I had that response. And like 10 different people who I all knew through Blue, Blue Collar Post Collective commented, replied to my comments saying, hey, that was great and you should hire him. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and, that, and that actually got brought up in my job interview. Right. They were right. like, oh, yeah, this happened. Uh, when, <laughs> I, when I applied for this job, I, I did a little Facebook stalking. I went and looked at the profile for the person who posted the job and I looked at our mutual friends. And we had, I think, four mutual friends, wow. two of whom I was comfortable uh, hitting up. Uh, and they're like, hey, can you, can you reach out to this person? You know, I just applied for a job that they posted. Can you put in a good word for me? Uh, and when I went to the job interview, the interview was, was with a different person, not the person who had posted it, but he had my resume printed out and written in pencil at the top with two references. Wow. Well, that's that, that brings up a really good point, which is start developing your reputation because your reputation is really what is going to get you in the door and get you jobs. It's what other people think about you, whether you're easy to work with, whether you're proficient at what you do, whether you're a good person in general. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if people think about that, especially when, when you're very young. You know, you have a reputation and it's important to sort of start building that early and making it, you know, as good as possible. Would you be up for answering some questions? Of course. Yeah, so I mean, we've got someone here asking, I uh, would love to know my, my workflow and premiere for features. Um, Fantastic. You know, it comes down to, you know, I guess we're talking bigger scope workflow at a technical level, you know. Uh, I think premiere is very fluid. I think when it comes to organization and stuff within the edits and within stuff, it's, it's as long as you are organized, do what works for you. But I think, I think it's important in general, it's to have, in, in post-production, have a strong roadmap of where you're coming from and where you're going. My personal workflow, I while the attached proxies workflow is incredibly powerful and incredibly cool, uh, and I, I do use it for some projects. I used it for Dimension 20. You know, there, there's shows where it's very valuable. I am a big fan of just an old-school offline workflow of, you know, transcoding everything, bringing it into Premiere, working, you know, Donovan Reed I cut with, with uh, either 720 or 1080, proxies the whole time and we just turned it over in resolve uh and resolve is so amazing at doing conforms uh at you know and at taking you know up resing footage taking you know i that that project was shot uh 5k on red mastered in 4k and edited in 1080 
uh, and the changes between those three resolutions never pose a problem because of the way Re uh, Resolve can do upscales. I was able to feed it a 1080 sequence, be like, hey, make this sequence 4K and relink to this 5K footage. So you're, you're, you're basically saying, uh, you know, forget about the proxy workflow in Premiere and Matchback sort of traditional. If, if, if you're doing turnovers, yeah. If, if you know, if, if everything's living in Premiere, then things get a little more complicated. Premiere is not as strong as, as doing a, a reconform as as resolved is understandably um in that case yeah maybe look at that i i cut a music video recently uh and it was shot 4k and i you know i i knew it wasn't going anywhere else so i transferred that to to proxies and attached them because it was a fork it was like a, you know i six or eight multi-cams i you know i had i needed to be able to throttle that down if it was going to work but on a show like college humor would you guys would you guys make your own proxies or would you is there a lab involved no that was all that's all the system editors creating those uh proxies uh i believe in in resolve uh and and we did use the attached proxies workflow uh in fact for for dimension 20 was kind of a unique piece because it was this multi-cam long form and we were you know we were using you know it's only three or four cameras not as when the content got cut out of it. Uh, and so we actually, you know, and this is a very unusual case, and we did this for some of the, the kind of game show format shows we did, like Um Actually. Hmm. Uh, but we actually went in and graded all the footage in Resolve beforehand. Wow. And then output full full resolution colored footage. Oh, wow. And and we also had proxies, uh, you know, that we attached for, for streamlining purposes. But when it would come to master, we would just master straight out of Premiere with that pre-graded footage because of the nature of these multi-cam shows. It was just smoother and easier to knock that out beforehand. And it saves a ton of money. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, that's obviously a, a very unusual beast. But yeah, so so I'm a big fan of that. Uh, you know, I, I, I just, I, one thing I'm really loving, uh, and I, I, this is for, uh, I assisted Andy Young on a, a comedy feature he's doing. We haven't done turnovers yet. So I haven't seen the other end of this workflow yet. But that is uh, creating dailies in Resolve with the, multi-channel audio baked into it right and doing doing the sync and resolve and resolve is a very interesting approach to to syncing uh, and then just giving single clips you don't have to work with multi-clips or merge that you shouldn't be working with and basically being like okay you cut the whole thing you it's all you can you've got the multi-channel audio and it's full quality so you can just turn that over to sound directly off the proxies right. uh and then and then online the footage back in Resolve and prepping it was uh, an absolute delight and breeze. And I suspect, I expect the turnover to be just as smooth. Well, we'll see. Right. But are you cutting with all those tracks? Uh, yeah. Wow. I, I'm not cutting it, like I said, but. Uh, oh, I got you. But yeah, he was cutting with all, all the tracks. It, you know, there was some hiccups. He, you know, he's a big fan of, of, he likes to have all his clips renamed. So it's like, you know, shot and take names just on the timeline, which that's very easy to do when you're doing a multi-camera you know, multi source sequence. You just rename the source sequence and leave the original assets right. with the, the same name. But you can't do that when you're working with what is functionally what a merge, you know, what you want a merge clip to do. From what I, under, what I understand, the uh, in Resolve and in Premiere, you can like right-click on multi-channel clips and basically treat them like multi-cameras. So if you're looking for the boom or the lavaliers or one character or another. Are you talking about going in and modifying the audio channels? Yeah, but but just like by right-clicking it in the timeline. Uh, I'm not, I'm not I, you, can, you can like disable, enable specific specific channels. Hmm. Uh, if, if, you know, or, or specific, you know, as individual tracks, is that, and is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. You're working with one track, but all the other tracks are, are, are hidden and you can just switch them like a, like a multicam picture. Yeah. Yeah. I think you have to be in a multicam to do, to do that. Uh, you wouldn't be able to do that with this workflow. 
one one thing that's actually really interesting on this on this Netflix show, and this isn't something I've worked with before, but it's really interesting because there's so many microphones because it's a you know an unscripted uh, follow style show. Is they actually take all of the multi-channel audio, run it through Wave Agent, and split them into individual files. Right. And then they go and take the individual files and append uh, the name of who's on that microphone to that file. Right. That's and then bring and then bring them in and then stack them in you know in the in the timeline and link them all. So it's right. the, the stack that's all linked and that, and that for for story producers and editors I, I can imagine must be incredibly valuable to look at the, the names of the tracks sure. of the assets and see you know who the, who they specifically are so that's been really interesting uh, and just to answer the follow-up uh i i have worked i primarily keep everything in one project i think that's not as much of a problem as it used to be for premiere uh and i actually have a theory about this because uh, you know the, there's long been a correlation between loaded project file sizes and stability in Premiere projects. Uh, and I don't actually think that loaded file size causes unstable Premiere projects. I think the things that cause unstable Premiere projects also cause, cause bloated file sizes, if that makes sense. Hmm. I think it's a symptom, not a cause. Because on, you know, on Dimension 20, we had files that went to several hundred megabytes. You know, hmm. and they got large and we would have no problems. But when you get things like tons of warp stabilizers, right. those are the types of things, and those all all that data gets stored. All those things will increase project file size, right? And also increase project instability. So it's specific elements. Yeah, I think it's a symptom, not a cause. But just to add to that, that goes away in, in productions because essentially you can break your film or television show or whatever you're working on down into individual scenes, each scene is a project in itself and overall there's a master project but everything and, and you're able to to copy elements from like a, from one to another without it creating duplicates in other projects within the production right exactly yeah no it's it's pretty awesome i think that's going to alleviate that problem if people are having it you know when you build the whole show you know who knows or reels you know who knows how, how it affects i haven't gotten to that stage on this project yet but uh so far it's working pretty Pretty flawlessly. I, I don't have experience. I, one thing I love about syncing the dailies in Resolve is that when it comes time to turn over, in theory, when it comes time to turn them over, everything's already built out. You know, yeah. uh, everything's already organized. All those assets already exist in Resolve, which is just kind of a nice, I don't want to say shortcut, but it's, uh, you don't have to do that same work twice. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, you know, I'm a little spoiled because that's sort of the workflow that, you know, our stuff is stored on servers when we get it from the lab and, you know, it's all at PhotoCam and, you know, you send, we send them lists and they take care of that part of the process. But again, what we were saying before, to have a working knowledge of this stuff, it's, it's critical because then you can communicate with these people. A lot of that stuff is falling to post-production supervisors, though, I find. Interesting. I find that, you know, sometimes when the editor or even an assistant isn't as versed in the technical side, uh, the post-production supervisor, a good post-supervisor, will navigate that, you know, for... I mean, they, they, they do liaise between, between post-production and, and uh, vendors and stuff. That, that's not, that doesn't seem too out of... You know, but I mean, I, I think I think on the other hand that you know the, the role of the system editor is getting more and more technical every day, and more and more and more things are going under the system editor umbrella. Maybe this is you know also for me spending so much time in the digital 
uh, workspace where there, you know, there aren't as much vendors. You know, even, even the high budget digital stuff I've been in, it's all being done in house with in house uh, mixers and colorists and stuff. Uh, but the system editor is needing to know so much more of this. I, I, I completely agree. And I think it's going to scale like big time over the next five to 10 years because I think we're moving to much more of a cloud based sort of workflow. And there's going to be a lot more, I think, sort of, you know, network involved information. And some of the reading that I've been doing has, has, has sort of mentioned that. So I think it, it is a little bit of a, a problem in the industry right now. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know if it was like that when you came, you, know, when you were coming up, but there was so much more of a, a mentorship relationship between assistant editor and editor. An apprentice editor was a job that does, you know, for the most part, doesn't even exist anymore. No, I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Richard and I wanted to do this because we are so siloed, you know, people, you know, don't get to interface with the editor. I, I, used I to, think, I think people forget that the assistant editor is an editor, like their title is, you know, they are an assistant editor. I think, you know, it becomes more assistant to the editor. But I mean, working in a room with an editor as he or she was cutting, well, you know, that's the way I was trained, you know, and that's what I wanted to do. I mean, even when I was a first assistant, I was always trying to, you know, teach the person working, I was working with more chores so I could spend time in the room watching that person, you know, practice the craft. So uh, I want to I answer this other, this other question about uh, what effect, how to figure out what effects carry over in EDLs and XMLs and which ones don't. Uh, I mean, trial and error never hurts. Um, for the most part, like, like it's, it's the, the broad answer is if it's unique to Premiere, it's not going to carry over. And so for the most part, I tend to assume that anything that's not like a property effect, you know, uh, scale, position, rotation. Wouldn't it be like a C CMX 3600 kind of basic, you know, sort of standard? Yeah, any, anything where you're just straight affecting the attributes, those will carry over. Anything else tends to not. And depending on if you're doing a round trip or not, will need to be rebuilt in Resolve. One thing that is very nice, depending on your workflow, is Resolve can output an XML to go back to Premiere. Uh, where you're, you're not outputting like a color time match, you're not outputting like the entire thing as one clip, you're outputting individual clips with handles and it comes with an XML and you can bring that XML back to Premiere, it rebuilds the edit, which gives you some fluidity to continue to adjust your edit depending on your handles, which is either a good thing or a bad thing depending on your producers. Uh, but in that case, it will reapply effects that were in Premiere. They, they won't be in Resolve, but they will become, it, it remembers them through that XML. Uh, which is a, also a good thing and a bad thing because if you got like a temp color or something on there, it'll apply that now on top of your colored footage or any effects that you have rebuilt. Uh, what, what I suggest, though, the workflow that I learned at Viacom, uh, whenever I send anything to online to color is I organize my assets by tracks. So like I have everything just regular on track one, anything with a motion effect on track two, anything with a speed effect on track three, anything with, um, you know, any other just, you know, premiere effects on track whatever. four. Uh, and then when I bring it over to resolve, I can then, I know like, oh, let me look at everything on track two and make sure those are all, have all been rescaled. You know, let me make sure those are right. Let me look everything on track four. That's kind of effect. When I round trip that back, I'm going to need to make sure each of those effects got reapplied or, you know, didn't, you know, V3, that speed, speed effects are really wonky carrying over. 
So those I'm going to want to, you know, specifically, I, I and so that means at a glance, I can know what's on each, you know, what each clip is supposed to kind of contain. That helps with that troubleshooting, kind of knowing what came over and what didn't. What about dynamic link with After Effects? Do you use that much? I mean, is that uh, something? I, I I try and avoid it because, you know, it's, it, it depends. It depends, I suppose. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, whenever I can have a VFX just be like an alpha asset. That makes my life a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not always possible, but like if you're doing a screen replacement and, you know, you can just get that kind of, you know, you're not doing any, anything too complicated and just be like, okay, here's, you know, here's a, a ProRes 4x4 file that's just the screen and it's got the thumb cut out and you can just drop it on top of the clip and, and there you're good. And then you can, you know, color the clip underneath it and do something like that. That's always the, you know, the ideal way for me mm -hmm. uh, for things as opposed to, you know, sending them over. But um, I mean, dynamic links are, are, are nice. I, I know a lot of people like to render or replace them on the timeline so that it treats it like a clip and then you can, you can either have it duped and disabled, or you can you can unrender and replace to get the dynamic link back, uh, which kind of helps with, with stability a, a little bit. You know, talking about turnovers, you got to be really careful to get rid of them when you're cleaning up for turnovers, because those won't carry over. Right. And then you have to you have to figure out once again what your workflow is. There, are you grading the the clip on its own without the VFX and bringing that color graded clip into After Effects? Right. And then you know that, that can often be a very straightforward way. Or are you outputting the entire effect as you know the effect shot and grading it with the effects on it? You know that, that's that's all the kind of conversation we had about the, the specific needs. Right, because you, you always go back to your OCR. I mean, for finishing, correct? I mean, no. I mean, I, you can. I mean, I've, I've mastered a lot of stuff straight out of Resolve. It depends, you know, and that's once again another conversation to have is you know, do we need anything that's specific to Premiere? Do we have some you know? some effects that are Premiere specific. We got to send this thing back to Premiere to get them back in and we can't bake them in as effect shots. You know, uh, a lot of the stuff at Viacom, we would do a lot of reversioning. We would do a lot of reformatting for vertical versus horizontal and stuff like that. So having all those final assets with handles and stuff for any reformats or reversioning, <clears throat> it was was very valuable. You know, one thing I like to say that there's no standard workflows and one thing I learned at Viacom, you know, we... we because Viacom, we deal with dealt with such a, a variety of content in terms of formats, platforms, style, and stuff like that. And so every project was kind of sitting down and being like, you know, running through basically a mental flowchart of like, okay, what, where are we, and where are we going, and you know, and learning all the variations and and all the options at each step and figuring out right. which one which one is applicable. Being flexible, sure. My setup, uh, I currently, I'm on a, a PC. I've got a solid state boot drive uh, and a three drive RAID 5 uh, spinning disk array. Uh, I cut some projects with uh, external drives. The, the show I'm on, you know, I have an external drive provided by the show with our 14 terabytes of proxy footage. Uh, I am currently planning, my, my next upgrade will probably be getting a, another solid state drive to replace the boot drive and then make my old boot drive into a media cache just a standalone media cache, because I think that's something that will uh, really help. And now, is this, this is my work? Home home no, this is my home machine. At work, it's 90% it's of the time, it's not, I'm not connected to, to a SAM. Anonymous attendee, I'm just starting a career in post-production, and a little later in life, I have some editing experience, but would love to work in a post-production house and eventually be an editor or post-supervisor. I know you mentioned networking. Uh, are there other things I should be doing? Are post houses more interested in recent college grads for entry level jobs? Uh, I mean, that's something I that that's not the path that I took, so it's hard to give specific advice. Uh, I, I I don't think so, man. I I, I think that uh, if you're good and you know, timing is so much is such a big part of it. 
you know, if you're at the right place at the right time and you've gotten your resume into the right hands, you're going to get the job. It doesn't really matter whether you're a college grad or, you know, someone who's, you know, worked in another area for a few years. I think the opportunity is there. So, again, I think that keeping, you know, your references good, your reputation good, because, you know, you're going to bring that to whoever you apply for a job with, uh, being a decent person to work with, uh, you know, via con Dios, man, just keep plugging away. Uh, and and if, if you if you feel your resume is sparse, find some interesting things about yourself that aren't work to put on there. You know, we, we Blue Collar Plus Collective, we did a resume workshop and someone had on a resume that she had her helicopter pilot's license. And everyone who saw that did a double take. I'm like, that's going to get, you know, have, have you standing out in a, in a stack of resumes. And also, it's it's going to be a long shot if it ever comes up. But that day, you that resume comes across the table of someone who also flies helicopters. <laughs> you're cold. You're going to go into that job interview and you're not going to even talk about the job. You're going to talk about helicopters for the entire time. You know, I think I think Chris Visser talked about when he, you know, when he met Zach Arnold, you know, they, they talked, I think it was bicycling, you know, that was their, Absolutely. their, their connection, you know, yeah. so make, you know, make yourself a person on, on the resume. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you can't, if you, if you don't, even if you do have enough to sell yourself as a professional, to be honest, try and find something like that. And that'll kind of help. Yeah. That's a good. Ad- because for entry level jobs, you know, for, for, if you're applying for a job as a post PA, no one applying for that job is going to have a super strong resume for the most part. Because you know, post PAs who get strong resumes become post coordinators. So, so that's kind of that's how you stand out from other people who hopefully have equally not as strong resumes. Alrighty, man. Well, it's hitting about the nine o'clock hour out here on the West Coast, and it's about midnight uh, in New York and the East Coast. So, we should wrap it up. I want to say thank you to our guest, Noah Diamond Stolzman. Uh, Noah, uh, thank you very much for being here and answering our questions. My pleasure. And you know, get a hold of Noah online. He, uh, you're still on the on the board at BCPC, or are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm on the Los Angeles committee. Los Angeles committee, uh, and I am the director of volunteerism for the organization. I'm Noah at BlueCollarPostCollective.com. Uh, if I need to be contacted about anything regarding that. Cool. Uh, cool. You know, we're always looking for people to you know to volunteer driven organization. So uh, from the from the bottom to the top. So. You know, you can yeah. make of it what you, it is what you make of it rather. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great group. You should definitely check it out on Facebook. Uh, we appreciate you all being here. Uh, check us out at Master the Workflow. We just uploaded uh, last week's uh, live stream with Richard doing a VFX webinar. So please uh, check that out on our YouTube channel. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Noah. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for having me.